Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 142 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Did you get a haircut or did you just not style your hair today? No, I got my haircut and I didn't style my hair. And I haven't cut my hair and I haven't styled it either. And it's just much longer. Look at it. Look at it. It's just out of control. This is great content. It's a main. It's a main. Yeah. I uh, mm-hmm. yeah I'm I'm in a no no style zone at the moment because Re has plans for my hair for Laracon AU in November, so I nice. don't want to really do anything okay. now with it because I don't want to mess up whatever she's got in mind for okay All right. the conference. So yeah, fair that's enough. That's where I'm at with this sort of faded in between um, very nice blue and red that I had that is now What's pink the- and pink and like copper wash. <laughs> What's the countdown? What's the countdown to Laracon? Oh, that is a good question. I think we're inside like maybe 70 days. Let's have a look. Okay. Let's get right around the corner. Maybe it's getting even excited. less than that. Getting, getting, it's getting real. It's getting yeah, real now. I tweeted earlier today, I went and saw Nucleus, who are the uh, branding agency that's doing all of our um, you know, artwork and stuff, and they have gone whole hog on all of the branding that they've put together. Oh, that's um, very so cool. They've done a good job up- so far, yeah done a, an amazing job 76 days we're at until uh the conference so we're um yeah they've i went and picked up the the t-shirt samples that we had printed up just to make sure that the colors were right and the style was right and things like that so we've got mm-hmm. um got those now I sent put a tweet out um for that and they showed me some of the other stuff that they're working on just in terms of artwork and collateral for the venue you know pull-up banners and light boxes and things like that and some um, interesting other media that they're doing for us. So they're um, they've actually yeah. done a really good job and I've had heaps and heaps of people um, comment on it. You know, the theatre that we're at, the people that, that run the theatre or the theatre company that run the theatre, you know, we're really uh, jazzed by it and um, they've done a great job there. It's going to be submitted for um, de- design awards as well. So oh, and it's been cool. a good, awesome. good showpiece, showpiece for Nucleus as well because it kind of covers the whole gamut of all of the different things they do in terms of digital and design and, um, yeah. you know, print and, and video and all that kind of stuff. So Man, they yeah, should be really, paying you. They should be paying you for this. <laughs> advertising. Yeah, I'm trying to get a few clients their yep. way as well. So um, just to, nice. just to get some work done as well because they, they do really great work and they're um, very excited by what they've done. They've come to me with a couple of other proposals for things that we're sort of 50-50 on at the moment, which will be really cool little bits and pieces for the conference, I think. So hopefully we'll be able to pick that up um, in the next little while. Um, yeah, we sent out an email to everyone this week, I think on Monday. We actually sold out. So we put the conference schedule up two weeks ago at the time of this recording. Um, and we talked about that on the Laravel News podcast. We had all of the, the talk titles went up. So people can sort of start playing guessing games around who they think might be speaking. Some of them are more obvious than others. Some might be identified by talk title because they've potentially given those talks before and things like that as well. But we were, I think we had about 20 tickets left when we put the schedule up, which was incredible to me because, you know, a lot of it I think is just FOMO from, from you know, not having a Laracon for four years. And and you would know that as well for Laracon US, how, how reinvigorating mm-hmm. it was to kind of, get back to the community and all that kind of stuff. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who runs another conference or is on the committee for another conference. And we're kind of talking before tickets went on sale around, you know, venue capacity. And I thought, you know, it's, I don't know what 
the appetite is going to be for the conference in terms of, you know, it's been four years, but we're in a very different situation now sort of economically as well in terms of, you know, the cost of things are going up and and people and businesses, you know, sometimes they're making decisions about, you know, doing these kinds of things and discretionary spending and things like that. You know, businesses maybe are holding off on sending people to, to events and things like that. So, you know, we didn't really know. And, and the, the response, you know, the, the fact that we had 20 tickets left before we even announced the schedule and then to have sold out the conference the day after that, that happened, you know, we sent an email on the Friday just to say, Hey, you know, this is the last of the blind bird ticket sale. We didn't like, I, I didn't really communicate the number of tickets that were, that were remaining. It was just, this is the last chance to kind of get your hands on the cheapest tickets will be this year. And even over the weekend at that point, we had several businesses kind of buy up, you know, 30 or 40 tickets, I think. So, you know, we got through the, basically what was left. And so now we're in a situation where we're trying to figure out how to make more tickets available. And I hope, I hope, hope to have more information by now, um, but I haven't got anything at this stage yet. So we're hoping <laughs> to maybe be able to make some more tickets available in the next little while, hopefully sooner than later, but there's some some ducks to get in line for that to happen. So yeah, really, really excited. Add a, few, for the add a few more seats, a few more folded chairs. To the venue. Yeah. Just bring some, some deck chairs out and uh, it should be okay. So um, there you go. Yeah. Very, very excited. Um, especially now that we're getting sort of close to the, the event, we're starting to kind of realize a lot more things in terms of, you know, speakers are starting to look at their flights. I went and sent the, the final sort of, numbers and dates to the hotel yesterday around, you know, who's coming in terms of speakers and when they're, they're arriving and leaving and all that kind of stuff. We're kind of sorting out the, all the, you know, bits and pieces around that, the, you know, the t-shirts I said, I came in or I went and picked up earlier today. And so, you know, we're getting even closer on that front as well in terms of, you know, merchandise is real now and things like that. So we're looking at a few different options in terms of what we're going to put together for a swag bag this year, which we haven't done in, in previous years. So excited to be able to do that as well um so it's, it's all coming together really nicely that's awesome man i'm glad to hear that i know it's a ton of work to make this wow. stuff happen so i'm glad for you that it's it's getting close and it sounds like everything's coming together real well that's that's very cool for sure um i had a couple of things i was thinking about talking about today i can't remember if we've talked about airdrop on here before have we talked about airdrop on here before a little bit I think maybe I said I'd report back. Okay, so <clears throat> I want to talk about AirDrop. I want to talk about Veet. And I want to talk about jQuery and Bootstrap in the old days. So those are a couple of things. Like, I don't know if you saw Chris Fidal say, I want to go back to jQuery and Bootstrap. <laughs> I did I did say that to it, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I, I, to a certain extent, like I sort of get that sentiment. Like mm-hmm. I did feel like in some senses, like I was just able to be really productive. Like I was just, you know, you didn't really have to think too much about stuff. You just looked at the documentation for Bootstrap and it's like, okay, I need tabs. Okay, I'll do that. I need a modal. I'll do that. You know, there were other challenges for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, it was like a really productive time, right? It was just like, there was not a lot of arguing about what thing to use. It was just sort of like, this is what everybody's using, which had its own problems, right? Which is like, everything looked the same. But also you just had a really productive set of tools that you're just like, you just pulled them out and everything was a jQuery plugin. If you wanted mm-hmm. it, you would just pop it on the page underneath. Um, you know, so anyway, I, I, 
think that's interesting just because I've been having some problems with Vite switching from mix to Vite and it's just like I don't understand it. It's like another thing I have to learn now and all that stuff. Yeah. But before we get to that, I thought I could talk about airdrop a little okay. bit. So this has been the challenge for me. Um, what we've done for the longest time is we've just compiled assets, both JavaScript and CSS, right on our local machines and then pushed them into production. We didn't get ignore them. We just pushed them straight to production. Mm -hmm. What that meant is that all of our tests didn't have to compile assets to do anything. And then none of our production um, CI pipelines had to compile assets or any of that Mm -hmm. stuff. And whatever you ran locally was going to just work on the server as well because you actually tested it locally. So great, all fine, all good, whatever. A couple of problems that you have with that, a few challenges. Number one, merge conflicts were inevitable, happened all the time, yeah. right? Second problem was if you forgot, if you made changes to the JavaScript or CSS, but you forgot to build assets and that didn't happen, then that was also problematic because it was like, okay, you forgot to push assets. So you had to check if you changed JavaScript, you so like, you know, the reviewer would have to be like, oh, I don't see a new build in yeah. here. Like you should probably run that new build, mm-hmm. right? So that was a problem. And then the one that actually was the crux of the change for us was we had to have production values present for like Pusher or Algolia or things like that, that we had to share around to our developers that were that were compiling for production. Mm-hmm. Because if they didn't use the correct values for Pusher, it would break in production. And that happened multiple times. Or same thing for Algolia. They'd be using a local development environment and they'd push it to production And it was like, crap, it broke. And then it was like, if you had a new developer working on something, you'd have to share those production keys with them, which seemed really odd, just very weird. And so just those are some of the issues we were running into that just, uh, you know, when you had one developer, two developers, it's like, okay, not too bad. But at a certain point, it was like, this is not scalable. This is not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. So we started looking for solutions. So some of the things that I don't like about compiling in production is that I have to manage versions of Node on my production server, which if you've been bitten by this before on your own local stuff, Mm -hmm. managing versions of Node is no fun on your own machine, but it's even less fun on a production machine, especially if you're not using like Docker or, you know what I mean? Some sort of image that's pre-built. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And it's like, you push production and it's like, okay, great. Now I got to figure out how to debug this stupid thing in production. Yeah. Okay. While the site's down and you're trying to figure out what's Um, going on and... Exactly. While the site's down and then anytime you deploy, you have this like, it takes a while to do it. And then you're also putting some load on your server and you have node, you know, you have a node uh, modules folder now that's inside of all of your apps as well, mm-hmm. which is also not great. So all of those reasons, those are reasons I didn't like compiling and putting it on the server itself. So the in-between that we found was what if you could do this? What if when you push to the pull request, if you're not in a draft, if you're in an actual pull request state where you're ready for review, it would build your assets in the test or in or in a whatever. It, it could be its own thing, but we decided to just build it when we build our tests. Mm-hmm. And then what it would do is it would cache that. And if it didn't need to rebuild them, it wouldn't. It would just pull them down from some repository, right? And then when you run your tests the second time, you haven't changed anything that's going to matter for the JavaScript or CSS. It's just going to download what it did last time and away you go. No big deal, Right. Now, you can do this uh, a couple of different ways. I know you guys are already doing this, I believe, uh, with caching the stuff inside of the GitHub action, mm-hmm. right? So you, you can cache those values and then you can just say, hey, cache, if it's already got it, then go ahead and pull it out. 
The problem that I had with that is what I wanted to do is I wanted to use these same compiled assets from GitHub on my production server. Mm -hmm. Here's the reason why. In GitHub Actions, I have a YAML file where I can specify the versions of Node or the versions of whatever I want because it's using containers inside of there, right? So I can specify per project what I want to use to build these assets out, right? I can put production level secrets inside of GitHub GitHub Actions secrets. I can manage them in there, no problem. And then I just build it and I have to then find a way to be able to grab these in my production environment with the same stuff that was built in GitHub Actions. Mm -hmm. That was the the new challenge, right? So all of those things in mind, AirDrop is the solution for me. So AirDrop is a thing built by Aaron Francis, which basically does exactly what we talked about. Um, you can use it locally, but we don't choose to. And locally, I just have the guys run NPM CI and NPM run Vite or run build or you know NPM run production or whatever, um, depending if we're using Mix or Vite or whatever. But in GitHub Actions, it will first check to see and the way the airdrop works is it calculates a hash, right? So it looks at all the things, sort of like how your mix manifest does um, or your Vite manifest file or whatever, your manifest.json. Yeah. It'll sort of look at all of the things that you want it to look at and say, uh, give me a hash, an MD5, all these files mashed together. These are all the things that will make a difference when, you know, when we're deciding if it's different than it was last time. Hash is all those things. And then it says, if this is available in our storage wherever the storage happens to be, just download it. And if you download it, then it skips actually compiling it. So an AirDrop, you have multiple drivers you can use. And what we ended up using was we ended up using an S3 driver. And then I just have a central bucket where you can drop all these assets. And the assets will just get you know dropped in there. And then in GitHub Actions, it uses that to download them in the case that they're already done. And if it does, it downloads them as a zip and expands them and drops them in there so you're all set to go. So then because it's an S3, I can do this same process on my production server. My production server basically says, first thing, if there's not an airdrop, a .airdrop underscore skip file, then don't bother even, even trying to compile things. Just error out. Because there's this .airdrop skip file that will come in if it's already had the assets compiled for it, essentially. So we just skip it. And if, if it doesn't exist, then we just throw an error. Otherwise, we say in the production server, just go ahead and download it and away you go. You're all set. So it's nice because it allows me to manage those versions of Node and stuff on the GitHub Actions. It fails before I ever get it sent to production. I just use to get to use my GitHub Actions minutes to compile this stuff. And it works awesome. Mm-hmm. It works really great. The only caveat we had was in the airdrop.php, um, there was something that we had. We, we, the people that we were having do it commented out the resources path uh, as the thing that was like a file trigger change. And so it was only looking for changes in the package.json, the Vite manifest file, and the Vite config file. And if none of those three changed, but something else did, like a JavaScript file, it wouldn't recompile. So the only way I could get it to work is to actually go delete the files in the S3 bucket, and then it would recompile. But that was a bit of a mess. Other than that, though, now that I've got that cleared up, everything works like a dream. Beautiful. And it's really simple. It's really nice. And it's solved 
all the problems that I've wanted to solve. Yeah. Which has been And great. the best bit is, you know, you've got that all centralized in GitHub Actions where it just needs to work there or it just needs to, you know, as part of AirDrop. Exactly. And then you don't have to worry about yep. different node versions on local and, and remote, whatever, and things like that. You can still introduce problems. You know, you get a new developer starts and just installs Node and suddenly they've got Node 20 and all of your stuff's building on Node yeah, 18 yeah, or whatever. True. Like that's that's always a schmuzzle. Like our our front end is built on node i want to say 16 but it's still using like node sas i was gonna say 16 and so node sas sure. is that yep. horrendous thing where if you leave it for a month and come and try and you know yep. npm install again yep. or whatever the whole thing blows up because it's looking for python and python is not where it expects it to be and something terrible happens and then i end up just upgrading node sas locally just so i can compile the front end which is in a separate repo just so that i can you know have the front end running locally and then just don't touch it again kind of thing. So, yeah, um, yep, exactly. But you're right. Yeah. You said that, that we kind of solved this problem. One of, one of the team went through and, and built this out a while ago, especially now that we're going sort of towards inertia and, and bringing, bringing ourselves back towards a single stack rather than having a separate front end back end repo. We're now going just to Laravel inertia view, um, Tailwind doing it all. So yeah, we've got this, this, um, action that runs essentially on on pull request so if, if it's if it's a pull request it's not a draft pull request we'll go through and we'll run you know lint check static analysis cs um you know pint we'll do all of our test suite all of that kind of stuff if that's successful we're all happy once we merge that pr into master then we go and we look here we go okay we depend on the build step to have been completed. So when we merge to master, we run a build workflow and the build workflow is responsible for going through and doing all of the steps necessary to prepare the application for release. So to go and check it out, it will it does, does all the composer caching and all the NPM caching. So if nothing changes between releases, it knows that it can pull that out of the yep. cache. Um, it will then go and install PHP. It will set up Node. It'll install all the node dependencies. It'll run through Vite. So it'll do all of the generation, all of the build steps, all of that kind of stuff for us. It then creates a table of all of that. So the entire release, front end, back end, all of it combined. Ah, yep, yep. And then it creates a new release in GitHub with all of that stuff packaged up, right? So we've got this 70 meg, whatever. That's really nice. Yeah. Um, Gzip sitting in GitHub which then triggers the next workflow release, which then goes and finds the most recent release. It will download it, untar it onto the server and then do all the configuration steps from there. So similar approach, but of course, you know, unless it was invented where you work, then you can't use it kind of thing. <laughs> I think I think the, the main crux right. of it was we were already in GitHub Actions and GitHub Actions gave us all of the tooling to kind of orchestrate this for our applications and you know, it was already configured to access our servers and all of this kind of stuff. We were already kind of doing this process in GitHub. So it made sense to kind of add another workflow in there to just do it. And so now anytime any code gets pushed into master, it will go through and run that step, you know, build the application, create a release. When that happens, it triggers the next workflow step, which is to then deploy master to our staging environment. So staging is always in sync with production. There's not, you know, you know, if you've got a staging environment that you kind of have to remember to keep up to date, it doesn't really work so well. Yeah. So it would deploy to yeah. staging and it would deploy to production, however many application servers that happens to be. And so, it's you know, it's nice to kind of, it's a bit of an investment to get it up and running. 
but it means that the same as with AirDrop, you get the consistency of node versions of like deploying PHP consistently, deploying your front end consistently, not having different things running in different places, not having to remember to run this and that and whatever else. And it's all kind of just there yeah. and automated and taken care for you for every commit. Um, you know, we'll run, we'll run um, every commit in a branch that has an open pull request. We will run CI and all the tests and all that kind of stuff. When we merge it, you know, there's a process in place that we can get code from sort of CI, which takes about 15 minutes, and then into production five minutes after that kind of thing. So it's nice to kind of streamline that process. Um, 15 minutes is not slow for a deployment um, or 20 minutes really, but, you know, it becomes kind of a bit iffy if you push like some critical bug. We've been fortunate, you know, knock on wood, that that hasn't happened where we've broken something that badly that we need to kind of do any dodginess. We do have the ability to roll back as well. And because we're deploying, um, you know, we're doing Capistrano style um, zero downtime deploys, we can just roll back to a previous release. Um, mileage may vary with that, obviously, in terms of, you know, if you've made destructive database changes and things like that, it's a bit harder to go back. We kind of, I think we've talked about it before, where we kind of try and separate database changes from code changes a little bit so that we can push you know we can always roll forward we would add a new column and then we would you know add some code in a subsequent release which is then responsible for using that and then once that's all happy we then create another release which then removes any old data and you know does any massaging of data there so that we've kind of got everything in a consistent state which means that we've always left ourselves the opportunity to go back even if we've introduced a database change we can always go back to the previous working code state and that way you know sure sure that new column is in the database now but it means we don't have to worry about data not being written or lost or whatever else in the process yep yeah i think that's a great way to do it honestly i mean boy that's always a terrifying experiment right we typically the way that we've solved that a little bit is like if i have if i have a um deployment to something that's really pretty critical i'll do like a database backup i'll just trigger a backup right before the deployment and until the backup's done it won't let me deploy it and so um that's worked pretty (laughs) we've never had to use it thankfully but it's it's worked well enough Mm -hmm. um so hey i also was gonna say um i'm going i'm just putting this together as far as like the the things that i'm doing inside of s3 inside of my github actions and also inside of envoyer to make this thing work mm-hmm. and i'm just throwing it together in a gist mm-hmm. so we can put it in the show notes for anybody who might be interested um it's pretty simple the, the the only thing i did not talk about yet is um the idea of s3 permissions at a user level so this is this is kind of interesting so this is something that i discovered that i was not aware of so basically the deal was I didn't want to create a new folder for every single like application, mm-hmm. right? I, I have an S3 bucket, but basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to restrict access to this single S3 bucket by username of the application. Uh, so each each application that we have that we deploy gets a S3, sorry, gets an AWS IM username, right? So if I have one called core, there's an app called core, there's a core user. And then that core user gets permissions assigned to it via policies. So 
I always start with a core user. And then if there's a, if there's an S3 bucket for, for core in, in there that I call maybe like core.overgroup.com or something, I will create an S3 bucket and then I'll create a policy that says something like admin access for core three or core S3 bucket, you know, and then I'll assign that policy to the core user. The reason I do that too, is because it makes it really easy to rotate keys. You know, you're not using a key per bucket, Mm -hmm. you're using a key per user, and then you're attaching all the policies to that user. So you just have one set of credentials for that. In any case, what you can do, and I'll share this with you real quick so you can see what I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. Um, This is, it's really interesting. What you can do is in your, um, in your policy, you can say that you have the ability to list all of the buckets for a particular bucket, but then you can say they only have put, get, and delete access to that bucket slash, and then you can use these magic variable strings like dollar sign AWS username. And so what that does is the user that's logging in, it will use that value in that location Mm -hmm. to say, if you're looking in airdrop assets slash core, you can write to that. No problem. That's fine. But if doc library is trying to write to that or read from it, it won't allow it to, Mm -hmm. right? And what this basically does is it stops somebody from being, you know, somebody who has access to core from being malicious and modifying something inside of like a really critical application, right? And so um, it just makes me feel a little bit better. I don't, the nice thing is I don't have to create a new policy for every single one of these. I can use, I, I can assign this same policy to every user and it only gives them access to the directory that is named the same as their particular mm-hmm. username. Now, the one thing I will say on this is that I did not recognize that usernames were case sensitive in in S3. It's sort of like sometimes they are, sometimes they yeah. aren't. But in the way that I've written this one, they are case sensitive. And that took me probably a day to figure out, literally a whole yeah. day. I was so mad. <laughs> Could not understand why it wasn't working. And like those errors are not super like helpful. It's just like, nope, you can't do that. It's like, what the heck? Why is it not working? And so I had to dig around forever. But I threw this in the show notes, this just little policy here that you can use to say, if you want to restrict access to a directory to only the directory that matches the name of the user that's logging in, you can do that. That's really helpful. The other two things that I threw in here are in the GitHub Actions, the three different steps that we take, which is the first one is airdrop downloads. We try and download it. And then if you can download it, it has this airdrop skip file. And if it's skipped, then you don't have to bother building it because it's already downloaded. And then um, in the case that it has not been built, or sorry, in the case that it hasn't been uploaded because you just built it, you can go ahead go ahead and airdrop upload. Um, and so it's a really simple process. Uh, it's not too difficult at all. But then in the same same thing here, we just, um, in the Envoyer action, it just CDs into the release and then does the airdrop download verbose. And then that's it. Yeah. That's all there nice. is. So. It's really simple, a really, really simple deployment process, uh, but it's worked super well for us. So thought I'd share that with everybody on the show too. Very nice. Yeah, well, um, that's okay to share yes. that gist. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, I think that should be fine. I don't think there's anything in there that would be problematic. Like this is all very general purpose. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you no know. secrets in there. It's there's just... nothing in here. No, there's no secrets. It's just, yeah, it's just the process. Yeah. Very nice. So I think that should be totally fine. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll share that with everyone. I sort of genericized it as well. I just called them like airdrop. You know what I mean? I, I modified some of the things. Mm-hmm. Just called it like, you know, airdrop assets yeah. or whatever. You know, like just like what you would name it, whatever you'd want to name it on your side. But for the sake of these, I just named the bucket like airdrop assets or um, 
you know, that's it. So that that would literally be the only thing that would have mattered is if there was a bucket named that, but there's it, it's fine. Yeah. So anyway, yep, there we go. Beautiful. Um yeah. The one other thing I was gonna talk about is Veet. Do you have you used Veet much? No, I we we've got a couple of devs that have been working on on the new sort of front end inertia stuff. And so I have not had much to do with it. I know that we're using Veet, um, but not yeah, not used it yet. I'm sure that day is coming. I feel like I've put it off long enough where it's like, you know, because we've got applications that are like 10 years old, mm-hmm. right? I mean, literally, some of these things are just, they're old. And so when I said like bootstrap and jQuery days, I wasn't kidding. Like some of these things have been built and using that sort of stuff for forever. And so when you've upgraded from Laravel version four up to version 10, like you're, I mean, not like all at once, right? I'm saying like, we've been doing this over the years. We had some applications that were literally built on Laravel four. And, you know, when we were first doing that, it was like, literally, you were just including everything as a, as a script file in the, you just, you know, you would download it and chuck it in your resources, JS vendor folder. And then you would just literally script include that thing on the page. No big deal. And then it was Laravel Mix, and this will bundle it up and minify it and do ECMAScript 6, you know, compilation stuff so it'll work on all browsers. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Let's use that. And then it'd allow you to use SCSS or SAS or whatever you were using back in the day. And that was awesome, right? And now we're to Vite. But the thing that's being a challenge with Vite is like it's sort of assuming that most of the things that you're doing are using, um, you know, ECMAScript, like EM ECMAScript 6 modules, yeah, yep. right? that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's like these libraries that we've been using for forever and modules weren't even a thing. Like class-based JavaScript stuff was not a thing then. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, it used to be like in Mix, I could just say, well, just put them in in this order, sort of like compile them in this order. And as long as the order was correct, it all worked. That is not the case anymore. That just is not the case. And so now I'm just at this point where like I have ignored it for a long time where like I had I knew enough to just sort of figure it out with mm-hmm. mix. But now I'm in this new world and I'm completely like if there's a problem, I'm screwed. Like I am toast. Yeah. I don't yeah. have any chance of solving this thing. Um, And I literally just feel like I'm looking for, you know, a life raft. Like so I like somebody chucked me something here because I, I just I will spend half a day trying to figure this stupid thing out and it's like i think i have it working and then i push it to production and it's like oh nope that error popped back Mm -hmm. up again it's just so maddening yeah so anyway i i was curious if you had if you'd had any experience with it for for all its warts and for all of its improvements and whatever else over time php by and large is still the same language that it was 15 years ago right you know, there are there have been yep. deprecations and things like that. You couldn't necessarily pick up a PHP not four. Not that many, though. Really, but, not that but you many. You wouldn't pick yeah. up a PHP four app and and drop it into PHP eight and expect it to just work. You, you know, true. you'd have to do something to it. But by and large, the language is very much the same. The tooling, the processes. You know, we've right, got right. Composer and we've got auto loading and things like that now. But in terms of the language itself and how it operates, is very much similar to what it has always been. And so, if you step away from JavaScript for six months, 12 months definitely, and come back to it again, it's going to be very different. I look at the stuff that they're building oh, in, our, yeah. in our view front end now and I don't recognize it for any of, you know, especially now that we're, we're moving towards TypeScript, it's it's going to be a whole thing to kind of learn all of that. Yeah, And we've yeah. got a couple of devs that are like front end devs 
that they can dive in and do the back end stuff and and figure out with the Laravel quite easily. But for you know for me to go the other way, it's going to take a bit more doing because there's lots of stuff around how you you know how they build view apps now and how they kind yeah. of put together all of the the bits and pieces and all of the TypeScript stuff. Like it's very different to the view two, which was like the last, I think view two was only just coming out when I sort of stopped using it. Um, and you know, it's, it's been a long time to kind of be away from it. And, and the ecosystem has changed so much that, you know, it's, it's basically like learning from scratch now. Yeah. It, it does feel like that sometimes. And you're right. Like, so if I make a new class in PHP, I don't have to go include it anywhere. It's just auto-loaded. Like, it's just available. Mm-hmm. I, you know, my editor knows, like, oh, yeah, you just got to include that thing here, and you're all set, and no big deal. Like, I don't have to go do any of that yeah. stuff. Like, where I feel like if I if I want to add a new something in JavaScript, like, if I have to go, like, specify that I'm loading that in over here, and then, I don't know, I'm sounding like an old man, I know. And I'm sure like there are, so there's equivalents in JavaScript sure. where you say like, hey, I put this thing and then I just have an import statement at the top of my other JavaScript file is utilizing it. And so it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm displaying my ignorance for everybody to see yeah. here. But yeah, I just I don't live in JavaScript land all that much anymore. And I'm sort of just like pushing it farther away as I go. Yeah. Like there are some things that I need it for right now, like some of the like library things that I'm using, but like more and more, I'm sort of like, I'm just going to sort of like go over to Livewire over here and pretend this never existed. Uh, but for the apps that have used it for a long time, I still got to get those things to support. Um, and it's like, I'm using, <laughs> I'm using jQuery and uh, like some, some jQuery knob chart thing. And like it's, you know, or, or data tables, data tables, right? It's like, I don't want to change that. Like it's literally doing exactly what I need it to do. And I don't care. I do not care that it looks like worse than it could look. It's like it works and nobody's complaining about it. So uh, those are the things I just don't want to reinvent the wheel on this stuff. It's like, I just want to get it to work and move forward. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you know what I come up yeah. with. I'll let you know what I discover. I think I think I'm on the brink of discovering some things that I could eventually share on here, mm-hmm. but not there yet. Yeah, I think for all of the cool stuff that Vue and React and sort of inertia affords us as backend developers, I think for a very large number of that types of applications that PHP developers are building, you can get away with Livewire. You know, if if you don't want to dip your toe into that JavaScript pool, and, we, and you know, we've, we've talked about this before, um, that that Livewire will get you a long way for the types of applications that we're typically building. I think, and then if you need anything more, you know, you've got Alpine JS as well. Just that little sprinkling of interactivity and reactivity and things like that, without having to go down the full garden path or the rabbit hole, I guess of learning view and bringing in all that extra tooling and build chain and things like that. And I've like, I've looked at it and I've, I don't have much to do with it at the moment, but I've, I've said to the, the, the team, I'm like, we could probably just build this in Livewire. Like there's nothing in here that's so over the top, you know, that, that we don't need all of the kind of effects and, and all of that sort of stuff that you, you know, view, view is kind of, the double clawed hammer of the JavaScript and React as well. You know, you it it can it affords so much stuff to you, but how much of it are you using? Right? 
How much of it do sure. you actually need? And, you know, can you get away with using something simpler without bringing in the tool chain, without bringing in, you know, 4,000 packages to, you know, pad left or whatever it was, you know, all of that kind of or left pad, all of that kind of stuff. You know, I think for a large majority of, especially the CRUD type apps that many of us are building, I know that, you know, I've seen yours. Yours is very similar to mine. It's all CRUD. Yeah, we've got a pop open a modal every now yeah. and then, but you don't really yep. need to have a full view thing to do that. Um, and and like, I totally respect what Jonathan has built with Inertia and and I get its place in the ecosystem. And it kind of bridges the gap where you don't like, I know that from our own experience that we had the API in the back end and we had this Nuxt app in the front end and they are very disconnected things and testing them was the whole thing and wiring them all up. Like I totally appreciate what inertia does and what it affords you. But at the same time, I also don't think that you need to use inertia to kind of get there and inertia um, Inertia and Livewire kind of afford you the same kind of outcomes in very different ways in terms of, you know, giving you your the ability to do your routing and all of that in one place without having to duplicate it. And, you know, I know that with our Inertia stuff, we've got uh, Ziggy generating all of the routes and things like that so that they're always available in the same way that they are. But, it, you know, it's still that extra bit, piece of work that kind of needs to be done. And so, I don't know. I... I I generally think that for the most part, we we really don't necessarily need all of that stuff. And like good on the people that have the capacity and the ability to do that. I just don't think if 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 you're like me and you you find yourself like flailing, you know, a duck on ducks ducks legs underwater, scrambling to try and keep <laughs> up, you know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too worried about it. I think there's plenty of tooling out there that kind of gives us 98% of what you need for most applications. Yeah. Certainly most of the applications that I've seen out in the wild that you, you know, you don't need to overwhelm yourself with all of that extra stuff. Yeah. And on that note, my friends, we're going to wrap this one up. I think that's all we've got for today. Episode 142. We had episode 142. Show notes at, uh, I almost said Laravel news. Show notes, we can be found this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 142. Hit us up on Twitter at NorthSouthAudio, Jacob Bennett, or Michael Dorinda. And if you like the show, rate about five stars in your podcatcher of choice. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again next time. Bye.